welcome to Come Follow Me with Free, episode 86, Holiness to the Lord. Hello, everyone. I am so glad you're here. Really quickly, I try not to do this. I used to do this every episode, but then, I don't know, I felt like it kind of took away from the whole atmosphere of the episode, so I stopped. But I just want to remind you guys how much of a difference it makes to me and to the reach of this podcast and episode if you guys share it. If you guys share it through text with a family or friend who you think could benefit from it, or if you share it on social media, um, it really, really makes a huge difference. And I know that sometimes, well, actually always, because <laughs> you guys aren't there to see my numbers, but you guys can't see it. But truly, it makes a huge difference in how this podcast how many people this podcast reaches. So if you can do that today, that would be great. It would be a way that you're serving other people. It would be a way that you're helping gather Israel. It would be a good kind deed you are doing today for me so that all of this, I mean, it's always worth it no matter how many people I reach um, because I always look at my numbers and I think of each one of you and actually my favorite ones of you, well, I mean, I guess I can have favorites because I don't really know who any of you are, but I love those of you who are in different countries in the United States because it's so fun for me to look around and look at my map and see um, where in the world you're listening to. And I think it's easier for me to feel attached to those of you where I'm like, I have this one person in China who's listening to me or whatever. So anyway, not that I truly have favorites, but it's just a fun thing to look at. So Okay, I'm going to stop there, but please share. It really does make a difference. Okay, so I want to talk to you this week about the word holy or holiness. It is mentioned in the chapters that we're studying this week in Exodus 17 times, and then we move on to the entire book of Leviticus, which we technically are only studying three chapters in Leviticus, but this is the only time that we touch Levit Leviticus in Come Follow Me. So the entire book of Leviticus mentions holy or holiness 101 times. The story of Moses and the Israelites is a story of the Lord making a holy people. A lot of these chapters describe how the tabernacle was to be constructed. And there's plenty of information of more in-depth information with different podcasts on that. So I'm going to give you more of a brief overview just so that we um, have a baseline to talk about it from of how the tabernacle was constructed. And there's also an excellent video about the tabernacle on the come follow me section of your LDS tools app. So there's lots of um, ways out there that you guys can learn in more detail than I'm going to go into about the tabernacle and about all the symbolism. Um, I am going to talk about it, but just not in as much detail as you could. And, and in addition, we have the scriptures and you guys can read it for yourself and you guys have, um, the opportunity to ask the Lord to help you understand and see and and discern symbolism within all of those instructions that were given in um, Exodus and Levit Leviticus. That's kind of a hard word for me, Leviticus. 
All right. So in short, the tabernacle was a portable temple so that the Israelites could offer sacrifices and perform the ordinances that they were commanded to. There was an outer wall constructed of poles and fabric with only one entrance on the east wall. As you walk into the courtyard, you can imagine that this represents the celestial world. And inside the courtyard and in front of the tabernacle, there is an altar where sacrifices would be performed. The altar symbolized the Savior and his atoning sacrifice. And the burnt offering, which was made by a faithful Israelite, giving the best of their flock, was symbolizing them willingly giving their sins to the Lord. The sacrifice would be cooked on the altar with fire, symbolizing the purifying spirit of the Holy Ghost. Between the altar and the tabernacle was a laver filled with water. Before the priest could go into the tabernacle, they needed to wash their feet and hands, and this can remind us of the cleansing effect of baptism and baptismal fonts in temples. Once a priest entered the, the building of the tabernacle, he first entered the holy place, which is the first of two rooms. This first room, the holy place, perhaps symbolizing the terrestrial world. So remember that the outer courtyard represents the telestial world and then the inner first room, the terrestrial world. This first section had three things in it. A menorah, which is the large candlestick you think of when, when Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It has seven candle holder thingies. Anyway, I'm sure you can picture it. The altar of incense and the table of shoe bread. The menorah provided light and was kept burning at all times. It symbolizes the Holy Ghost and the need to live our lives by the light of the Spirit. The table of shoe bread held 12 loaves of unleavened bread and wine, reminding us of the bread and water of the sacrament, symbolizing the sacrifice of the body and the blood of the Savior for our sins. And then the altar of incense, incense was placed directly in front of the Holy of Holies. And each morning and evening, a priest would burn that incense. And as they did, the smoke would rise. And this symbolizes the constant need for Israel to raise their voices in prayer to the Lord. The second portion at the back of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and it was shielded by a linen veil embroidered with cherubim. The Holy of Holies is representative of our ultimate goal of living in the presence of God, the celestial kingdom. The high priest only came into this room once a year on the Day of Atonement, and inside the center of the room is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a gold chest containing other sacred objects like the stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments. This reminded ancient Israel that their way back to the the Father was only through obedience to those commandments. The lid of the chest was called the mercy seat. It was made of gold, and on top sat two cherubim with wings extended toward each other, nearly touching in the middle. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter, and he would sprinkle blood from the sacrifice of the lamb on the mercy seat as part of the, the ritual that they would do, and that symbolized the sacrifice of the Son of God for our sins. The tabernacle was a necessary part of the Israelites becoming to the Lord a holy people. Just like the temple today is part of that process of becoming a holy people to the Lord for us. Why, why does the Lord do things differently in different dispensations? Why were the Israelites instructed to do things differently than those saints who came before them? Why were things done differently after the Savior's sacrifice? I was talking to my kids on Sunday about the progression of commandments, and we've kind of mentioned this throughout the last few episodes of the podcast, but we've been reading a lot of very precise commands in the book of Exodus and now Leviticus. At the time of Moses, up until the time of Christ, certain actions 
must be taken with exactness, and they were intended to help point minds and hearts toward God and the Savior. Previous to the time of Moses, the law of the gospel was in effect, including baptism. Adam and Eve were given the law of the gospel. So let's read about how and why that came about, and then we'll get to why the people then lived a different law. So we went from the law of the gospel, the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of the priesthood at the time of Adam and up through the time of of Moses. And we know that we remember that Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, had the Melchizedek priesthood and Moses had the Melchizedek priesthood. And it wasn't until the Israelites rebelled that that Melchizedek priesthood was taken away from the general uh, people of the Lord. Okay, so Adam and Eve, let's read about how and why that came about. In Alma 12, 26 through 33, it says, And now behold, if it were possible that our first parents could have gone forth and partaken of the tree of life, they would have been miserable forever, having no preparatory state, and thus the plan of redemption would have been frustrated, and the word of God would have been void, taking none effect. But behold, it was not so. But it was appointed unto men that they must die, and after death they must come to judgment, even that same judgment of which I have spoken, which is the end. And after God had appointed that these things should come unto man, behold, then he saw that it was expedient that man should know concerning the things whereof he had appointed unto them. Therefore he sent angels to converse with them, who caused men to behold his glory. And they began from that time forth to call on his name. Therefore God conversed with men, and made known unto them the plan of redemption, which had been prepared from the foundation of the world. And this he made known unto them according to their faith, and their repentance, and their holy works. Wherefore he gave commandments unto men, they having first transgressed the first commandments as to things which were temporal, and becoming as gods knowing good from evil, placing themselves in a state to act, or being placed in a state to act according to their wills and pleasures, whether to do evil or to do good. Therefore God gave unto them commandments, after having made known unto them the plan of redemption." that they should not do evil, the penalty thereof being a second death, which was an everlasting death as to things pertaining to righteousness. For on such the plan of redemption could have no power, for the works of justice could not be destroyed according to the supreme goodness of God. But God did call on men in the name of his Son, this being the plan of redemption which was laid, saying, If ye will repent and harden not your hearts, then I will have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. Okay, so the fullness of the gospel was revealed to Adam and Eve. Prophets of every dispensation held the Melchizedek priesthood. It was never taken from them, including Moses. We see all kinds of examples in the Book of Mormon of prophets who clearly hold the Melchizedek priesthood because they are administering ordinances that would require it. However, the general male membership of the church from the time of Moses were not able to have anything higher than the Aaronic priesthood due to the disobedience that we've talked about among the children of Israel in the past few weeks. The Aaronic priesthood is not different. It's not a different priesthood. It's just a smaller portion of the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, the only thing that this is a little bit hazy to me because we have Book of Mormon prophets that clearly held the, the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, Lehi held the priesthood. But then I don't know if the general membership of the church wasn't um, permitted to have the Melchizedek priesthood. Who was because we we read in the Book of Mormon all kinds of uh, missionaries and and things that that I think did hold the the Melchizedek priesthood. So I don't know if it was just up to the discretion of the prophet at the time if he could give the Melchizedek priesthood. Maybe, I'm sure someone smarter than me knows that. Um, 
But in general, the general membership of the church was not permitted to have anything higher than the Aaronic priesthood. Okay, so in the Bible dictionary under Melchizedek priesthood, it says, When Jesus came, he restored the Melchizedek priesthood to the Jews and began to build up the church among them. However, it was lost again by apostasy and was taken from the earth. Okay, so as Jesus lived his mortal life and then died, which fulfilled the law of Moses, he introduced the law of the gospel, which was much more focused on the condition of a person's heart and had much less focus on precise actions. So in reading the scriptures that we've been reading lately in Genesis and Exodus and and now Leviticus, we are reading about the law of Moses. So what is different from the law of Moses and the law of the gospel? President Ezra Taft Benson described the law of the gospel. We covenant to live the law of the gospel. The law of the gospel embraces all laws, principles, and ordinances necessary for our exaltation. We agree to exercise faith in Jesus Christ and a sincere repentance born out of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. As we comply with the ordinances of baptism and confirmation and continue in faith and prayer, the power of the Savior's atoning sacrifice covers our sins and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now this is the commandment, Repent, all ye ends of the earth, and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost, that ye may stand spotless before me at the last day. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. The law of the gospel is more than understanding the plan of salvation. It consists of partaking of ordinances and the sealing powers culminating in a man being sealed up unto eternal life. Being born again, said the prophet Joseph Smith, comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances. Okay, so why is the law of Moses not adequate for salvation? What is it that makes the law of the gospel the fullness, and what does it do that a lesser law, the law of Moses, cannot? It doesn't include the saving ordinances we know are necessary for exaltation. Bruce R. McConkie said, Telestial law is the law of evil, carnality, and corruption. Those who so live develop telestial bodies, which can stand telestial glory, which is found in a telestial kingdom. Terrestrial law is the law of decency and uprightness from a worldly standpoint. Those who conform to this higher order thereby create for themselves terrestrial bodies, which can in turn stand terrestrial glory and go to a terrestrial kingdom. Celestial law is the law of the gospel. It is the law of Christ. It calls upon men to forsake the world and rise above every carnal and evil thing. It calls upon men to repent and be baptized and receive the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of God. It requires that they become new creatures of the Holy Ghost. Only those who so live acquire thereby celestial bodies. Only such bodies can stand celestial glory. And this glory is found only in a celestial kingdom. Since the final destiny of this earth is to become a celestial globe, it thereby becomes the ultimate and highest heaven for all the faithful who have lived on its surface. Isn't that so interesting? Until reading this quote, I hadn't ever quite thought of it this way, that we are quite literally creating the kinds of bodies that can withstand certain levels of glory. So in order to create celestial bodies, we can't only be living the law of Moses because there are saving ordinances necessary in order to create our celestial bodies. And we know that the people who lived during this time who didn't receive all of their saving ordinances will be given the opportunity to do so. And actually, I'm kind of having, um, this is a little bit out of order, but I'm just thinking about 
people like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this was obviously before Christ fulfilled the law of Moses, and he was baptizing people. And we know that baptism and those ordinances happened before Jesus Christ in Adam and Eve and, and, you know, all of those prophets before the law of Moses. And so it just makes me wonder, and maybe somebody really smart that's listening, if you're listening to me, can um, know more about this and, and maybe message me. But I just am wondering, like, was, was John the Baptist, he was considered a prophet. And so then was he given the Melchizedek priesthood by another prophet or was he given the Melchizedek priesthood by the Lord himself? It's just um, a little muddled in my mind about how all of that worked. But all I'm trying to say is, isn't it cool how the Lord's plan and the way he works makes so much sense? It just all works together. The children of Israel couldn't live that higher law, and so they were given a lesser law until the time of Jesus Christ. And I just I just love when I when I learn things and when I reread things, and it kind of refreshes in my mind just how much sense all of this makes. Okay, so the point of all of this is to notice a clear pattern the Lord has as he creates a holy people. And that creation of a Zion people has always been the end goal. The ideal is the higher law, the law that includes the saving ordinances required to become like he is. But mercifully, he also recognizes when we as a people are not prepared to live that law. We've seen it happen in modern times as well. The saints were given the law of consecration and they were unable to live it. So the Lord scaled back to a lesser law, the law we live now, which is the law of tithing. I just think it's so cool to recognize the overarching story that has happened since Adam and Eve, that the Lord is cultivating a people who have the capability of becoming truly holy as he is, and he adapts to the spiritual capacity of his people. This adaptation and evolution continued until the prophesied apostasy when the authority to facilitate and perform these ordinances were lost. The story of the earth is the story of the Lord cultivating his holy people. And that brings us to now, who are the future prophesied holy people of the Lord? And of course, we know when the Lord comes again, that all of the righteous saints from all of the ages past will come and be a part of the Lord's holy people. But as far as who is on the earth today, who are those holy people? They are those who have been and will be gathered to Israel, honored their covenants and obeyed the commandments. So hopefully, hopefully that's us. Hopefully you and me, hopefully I can qualify to be one of the Lord's people. The Lord's people are Zion. And let's not forget about one very cool segment of Zion that will be eventually gathered to the, the tribe of Ephraim, the city of Enoch. It says that the people of the city of Enoch will eventually come to the American continent, to the, the Zion, New Jerusalem. And it says that the people of the city of Enoch will come together with the people of the tribe of Ephraim and they will fall on each other's necks and, and cry and greet each other and all that cool stuff. Okay, but let's not forget one very important segment of the house of Israel related to those that we are reading about, the Jews who are the descendants of these Hebrews that we've been reading about, the Israelites. The Jews are prophesied to reclaim the Holy Land, which they have been in the process of doing over the last hundred years. 
It's incredible to think about all of the civilizations in the history of the world that have crumbled and become extinct. And yet the Jews, this chosen people of the Lord, are still here after everything they've gone through as a people. From this Old Testament timeline we're in the midst of reading to wars, to expulsion from Jerusalem, destruction of their temple, and then reconstruction and pogroms, inquisitions, holocaust, and now even current desires and missions of nations and organizations who wish and their ultimate goal is the entire destruction of Israel and the Jewish people. With all of that, it really seems like logically they shouldn't be here anymore. Many more civilizations have died out with much less adversity than that. They logically should have been destroyed by now. But the Lord's work cannot be frustrated and they play an important part. So here they stay because they are a part of his chosen people. Just in our recent history, because of the Holocaust, they went from a population of approximately 16.7 million prior to World War II down to just over 10 million, losing 6 million of their people. And they've now rebuilt to about 15.2 million. That's just a million less than we have in the LDS Church. That is a divine signature. God's handiwork is all over that because he has prophecy involving them that must be fulfilled. So ultimately, they cannot fall. The Lord has told us that the Jews are a part of that chosen people that will eventually join together with us as a part of Zion. This doesn't mean that they are perfect. But the Savior will ultimately come to win their final battle in Jerusalem. They will meet him in the valley of the split Mount of Olives. They will see his wounds and his sides and his hands and feet and acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Doesn't that just make you love them so much? I'm so excited for their future, and it's such a testimony builder to watch them be the central focus of so much conflict in the world, despite such a relatively small population. Knowing what their future is and how this fulfills prophecy, it's it's just such a testimony builder. Okay, so in these chapters this week, holiness is certainly a theme, building a holy people, and especially through Leviticus. These chapters mention a holy day for the Lord, holy anointing oil, the holy place, an altar of the most holy, holy garments, holy offering, holy crown, holy linen coat, holy convocations, holy congregations. Aaron wears a hat that says holiness to the Lord. When we enter the temple, we see the sign on every temple saying holiness to the Lord. And we just learned where that came from. Aaron, or whoever the presiding high priest was at the time, was required to wear a hat or a turban that has that gold plate around the forehead that says holiness to the Lord. This was a reminder to the people and to Aaron to keep their hearts and minds centered on the Lord. In Moses' time, only the high priests were able to enter the Holy of Holies. But now, any worthy member can enter the place that is our Holy of Holies, the Celestial Room. Are we making sure that we are, that we can become a holy people? As we walk up to the temple and read the sign inscribed, Holiness to the Lord, are we entering the temple with the sincerity and respect and desire to leave the world behind that that inscription denotes? This description of the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a pretty clear idea of what we must do to become a holy people. 
As we quoted earlier, President Benson said, We agree to exercise faith in Jesus Christ and a sincere repentance born out of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. As we comply with the ordinances of baptism and confirmation and continue in faith and prayer, the power of the Savior's atoning sacrifice covers our sins and we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. So similarly to the Israelites, part of the full exercise of the current law that we are covenanted with the Lord to follow is to go to the temple and participate in ordinances for ourselves and for the dead. The tabernacle, its construction, and its functions symbolically have a lot in common with what we do in the temple as we talked about before. This next part is going to repeat a little bit of what I've already said in the description of the tabernacle, but I think it's good to repeat to, I know that I had to read through this and refresh a few times in my mind before I really got it anyway. So, so this is a good repetition to cement in your mind what really goes on in the tabernacle and what it all means. The Come Follow Me manual says it so well, and it also adds some additional insight. It says, Our modern temples share similarities with Israel's tabernacle, but they certainly don't match its description in Exodus. And we don't kill animals in our temples. The Savior's atonement ended animal sacrifice over 2,000 years ago. Yet despite these differences, there is great value today in reading about ancient Israel's forms of worship, especially if we see them the way God's people in the Book of Mormon did, as a way to strengthen their faith in Christ. When we understand the symbolism of the tabernacle and animal sacrifice, we can gain spiritual insights that will also strengthen our faith in Christ. When God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle in the camp of the Israelites, he stated its purpose, that I may dwell among them. Within the tabernacle, the presence of God was represented by the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden box covered with gold containing the written record of God's covenant with his people. The Ark was kept in the holiest innermost room separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a veil. This veil symbolizes our separation from the presence of God because of the fall. Other than Moses, we know of only one person that could enter the most holy place. The high priest. Like other priests, he had to be first washed and anointed and dressed in sacred symbolic clothing of his office. Once a year, on the day called the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people before entering alone into the tabernacle. At the veil, he would burn incense. The scented smoke ascending to heaven represented the prayers of the people ascending to God. Then the high priest, carrying the blood from the animal sacrifice, would pass through the veil and approach the throne of God, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. Knowing what you know about Jesus Christ and his role in Heavenly Father's plan, can you see how the tabernacle points us to the Savior? Just as the tabernacle and the ark within it represented God's presence among his people, Jesus Christ was God's presence among his people. Like the high priest, Jesus Christ is the mediator between us and God the Father. He passed through the veil to make intercession for us by virtue of the blood of his own sacrifice. Some aspects of Israel's tabernacle may sound familiar to you, especially if you've been through the temple to receive your own ordinances. Like the tabernacle's most holy place, the temple's celestial room represents the presence of God. To enter, we must be first washed and anointed. We wear sacred clothing. We pray at an altar from which prayers ascend to God. And we finally pass through a veil into God's presence. Perhaps the most important similarity between modern temples and the ancient tabernacle is that both, if understood correctly, strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ and fill us with gratitude for his atoning sacrifice. God wants all of his children to enter into his presence. He wants a kingdom of priests and priestesses, but our own sins prevent us from attaining that blessing, for no unclean thing can dwell with God. 
So God the Father sent Jesus Christ, our high priest of good things to come. He parts the veil for us and empowers all of God's people to come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Today, the purpose of temples is more than obtaining exaltation for ourselves. After receiving our own ordinances, we can stand in the place of our ancestors, vicariously receiving ordinances in their behalf. In a sense, we can become something like an ancient high priest and the great high priest, opening the way to God's presence for others. So as you read some of the more tedious details about how the tabernacle was to be constructed and rituals to be performed, I think it's easy to just kind of think, well, great, now I know how the tabernacle was made. But ask the Lord to help you see the symbolism and how it applies to things that we do today. The things the Lord asked the Israelites to do were what was needed for them at their developmental level to draw closer to the Lord and become a holy people. Are we showing the Lord that we personally are at a spiritually developed level to properly appreciate and hold sacred the things that we have been asked to do in our lives and in the temple? I don't know that I've really been doing that. I know that pre-pandemic, even then, I wasn't that great at it. And especially now after the pandemic, I've kind of gotten out of the habit of going to the temple. But this kind of has me reinvigorated because we know that going to the temple is part of how we draw closer to the Lord and become a holy people. Carol F. McConkie said, Our hope for holiness is centered in Christ and in his mercy and his grace. With faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement, we may become clean without spot when we deny ourselves of ungodliness and sincerely repent. We are baptized by water for the remission of sins. Our souls are sanctified when we receive the Holy Ghost with open hearts. Weekly we partake of the ordinance of the sacrament. In a spirit of repentance with sincere desires for righteousness, we covenant that we are willing to take upon us the name of Christ. Remember him and keep his commandments so that we may always have his spirit to be with us. Over time, as we continually strive to become one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we become partakers of their divine nature. We recognize the multitude of tests, temptations, and tribulations that could pull us away from all that is virtuous and praiseworthy before God. But our mortal experiences offer us the opportunity to choose holiness. Most often, it is the sacrifices we make to keep our covenants that sanctify us and make us holy. Holiness is a gift of the Spirit. We accept this gift when we choose to do things that will increase the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Sisters and brothers, if we would be holy, we must learn to sit at the feet of the Holy One of Israel and give time to holiness. Do we set aside the phone, the never-ending to-do list, the cares of worldliness? Prayer, study, and heeding the Word of God invite His cleansing and healing love into our souls. Let us take time to be holy that we may be filled with his sacred and sanctifying spirit. With the Holy Ghost as our guide, we will be prepared to receive the Savior in the beauty of holiness. Heavenly Father has given each of us the capacity to become holy. May we do our best as we keep the covenants and take the Holy Ghost as our guide. With faith in Jesus Christ, we become saints through his atonement, that we may receive immortality and eternal life and give God our Father the glory due his name. May our lives ever be a sacred offering that we may stand before the Lord in the beauty of holiness. After studying this, I, like I said, I'm so excited to go to the temple with a refreshed appreciation and understanding of what we are doing when we are there. The temple, like the tabernacle of the Israelites, can help us reorient our lives around the only thing that matters, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through this prescribed way of living, 
all other important things fall into place. Living our lives oriented around that truth will ultimately produce the best outcome, not always the easiest outcome short term, but always the outcome that will work for our good. Becoming a holy people by living the way the Lord has asked us to live, participating in the ordinances and covenants he's asked us to participate in, is the ultimate act of faith and the only way we can become a holy people and become as he is. Through the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can ultimately become that holy people, enjoy all the blessings that have ever been promised, including living as he lives feeling joy as he feels, and becoming the holy creators that he knows we can become. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.